sometimes we run, as we've been seeing David do in these psalms. We'll get to that in a minute. But sometimes we run because we actually are afraid of what will happen when we stop running. I want to read you this quote. It's from Brene Brown. She says this, and I, I read this years ago, and it has stuck with me since. If we stop long enough to create a quiet emotional clearing, the truth of our lives will invariably catch up with us. We convince ourselves that if we stay busy enough and keep moving, reality won't be able to keep up. So we stay in front of the truth about how tired and scared and confused and overwhelmed we sometimes feel. Of course, the irony is that the thing that's wearing us down is trying to stay out in front of feeling worn down. This is the self-perpetuating quality of anxiety. It feeds on itself. We keep on trying to busy ourselves, outrun the chaos of life. We try to occupy our mind, occupy our bodies, occupy our soul and our spirit with all kinds of activity. Because now, more than most times in our lives, there is plenty to give us that we're scared, confused, overwhelmed. Like We feel that. And tired and exhausted, we feel that. And so it's easy for us to try to run in front of that so that we don't feel it. We get busy. Even if it's with God things, we busy ourselves to try to stay ahead of the fears and anxieties that are hounding us. So, we get in the habit of outrunning life. We're trying to stay ahead of life. But what happens if we stop for a minute? What would happen? We don't like the answer. No, then everything would catch up with me. Then all the guilt I'm feeling and the things that I know is happening in here, it'll all come in and it would present itself in an ugly way. I can't stop. I have to keep going. Well, friends, this is the problem with prayer. It gives us enough space, enough of a pause to allow life to catch up with us. So that we must live in the real world and in the present rather than pretending everything's fine as long as I keep on doing more and adding more to my life. Well, we're going to see this come to play here in Psalm 6. So let's read it. The title says, To the Choir Master. So this is a sung song of prayer. With stringed instruments, according to the Sheminth. We have no idea what that means. A psalm of David. Oh, Yahweh, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, oh, Yahweh, for I am languishing. Heal me, oh, Yahweh, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. But you, O Yahweh, how long? Turn, O Yahweh, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Shul, who will give you praise? I am weary 
with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of my grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my plea. Yahweh accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Psalm 6. There are five psalms about David running from Absalom. That's how the Psalter begins. You might remember, Psalm 1 and 2 are introductions to the book of Psalms. They tell us what we're getting into and how to go through the Psalms. So remember that Psalm 1 said, meditation on scripture. That's what we do in the Psalms. We meditate upon the Psalms. It's a form of prayer. We take the scriptures and we soak them into our being. Psalm 2 says, adoration of the king. The the nations have their king. They're in an uproar. They're doing their thing. But Psalm 2 says we have our own king. God has set up his own king. Adoration of this king rather than anger and angst at what everyone else is doing is the way to go about life. So the Psalms open up with meditation and adoration, the scripture and the king. And then Psalm 3 is the first proper psalm in which we see David is on the run from Absalom, his son. So to review real quick, David's the king. Absalom is the one he's grooming to take his place. Absalom is ambitious. Ambitious Absalom with his luscious long locks. And it says he cut his hair every year and the hair weighed five pounds. Can you, first of all, can you imagine wearing five pounds of hair and then regrowing five pounds of hair every year? This man was the adoration of all ladies and maybe even a few men if they were willing to admit it. Oh, I wish I looked like him. <laughs> Absalom was ambitious and he stole the hearts of Israel and he threw his father off the throne. And so David is in the wilderness in exile. He's on the run. The Psalms begin the way life does on the run. Psalm 3 is prayed on the run. Psalm 3 comes in the very middle of the plot, in the middle of life. Whatever you're going through, prayer always begins in the midst of things. Life doesn't wait for us to say, wait, let me start my devotions or let me pray about this first. Sometimes it just happens and we're praying in response. That's how the Psalms begin. And we haven't slowed down. Psalm 3, David's frantically worried if he's going to die or not. He learns that in prayer, he finds that God is his shield and he's protected. He's protected in God. God is my armor. God is my shield. I don't need to go fight for my crown. I don't need to prove myself. I will, in prayer, find God as my shield. Then he begins to see in prayer this rhythm. I can keep running and I can find the rhythm of the run so that I can keep going. Psalm 4 shows us the evening prayer of David. And in that, we looked at examination. In the evening, we pray an examination of our lives. Psalm 5 is his morning prayer. And we looked at contemplation. It's where we're gazing upon the face of God and we let him show us his life. 
David got in this rhythm, evening, morning, p.m., a.m., examination, contemplation, God, look at my life, I will look at your life. Back, this was his rhythm. This was the cadence of his run. So, if you imagine the squirrels we see all the time crossing the street, when they begin, they have no clue what they're doing. They go across three quarters of the way, then they go back as if that was a bad idea, and they aren't going to make it after all, and all the while you're coming toward them, right? And then they go forward again, then back again, and sideways, and they have no idea what they're doing. That's us. We, at first, the problem strikes, Absalom hits our life, and we are just bolting in fear and flight, and we're not sure what we're doing. But then we find our rhythm, and we learn one step, one step, one step, and we get across to safety. David has found his rhythm. But my friends, perhaps you have found your rhythm too. And you are praying evening and morning, evening and morning. And now you're realizing there's a problem with praying evening and morning. When I let God gaze at my life and I gaze at his life, a problem is quickly developing. Suddenly, the outside world that I've been trying my hardest to run and manage and keep control of is now imploding into my inside world. The external events I'm trying to keep out of my mind are compounding the fact that there are internal problems as well. You see, when we first start to pray, it's an external thing, isn't it? We pray for people, we pray for situations, and we pray that God would make this work and take this problem away. We start with an external prayer life. But when we begin to get in the rhythm of prayer, we pause long enough for all of that other stuff inside to bubble up. And all of a sudden, I don't like what I'm seeing. I enjoy being busy. I enjoy trying to plan my life, trying to plot the next step, trying to manage the chaos. This whole pausing in prayer is showing me things I haven't wanted to notice. That's what happens. And that's what happens here with David. So, Second Samuel, I want you to see where he's at. Um, you don't need necessarily to go there, but we'll be here next time as well. Um, when we look at Psalm 7, 2 Samuel 15 is when David decides to leave Jerusalem. Give the throne to Absalom. 2 Samuel 16 is when he's on the road out into the wilderness. There's this guy named Shimei. He's throwing rocks at David saying, you're lame. And he's cursing him and he's using words that the Bible doesn't record probably because they weren't very nice words. But he's also saying that, look, you overthrew Saul. And he's saying, the blood is coming back on your own head. God's getting even with you because you've been a bad king. And so Shimei is full on cursing David and throwing all kinds of doubt upon his head and literally throwing rocks at him. And so David has to be protected by his men as he's in shame leaving Jerusalem and people are hurling curses and rocks at him. That's what's going on. Now, how does David feel very confident right now? God, why are you, why are you giving my throne to my son? What is going on? And so Shimei is doing this and then David's nephew, one of his bodyguards says, Oh, shall I take his head off for you? Now, most kings say, yes, he deserves to die. But David says this in second king, second uh, Samuel 16 verse 10. David said, look, 
if he is cursing because Yahweh has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai, his bodyguard, and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse for Yahweh has told him to. Wow. David's feeling very low right now. And then you can skip on down. Second Samuel 16 verse 14. It says that the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. This is physically, spiritually, emotionally exhausting for David. Body, soul, and spirit are worn down. He had to leave. This is a trip of physical packing up and leaving and on the run and the adrenaline. And you're being crushed and you're losing your confidence. And you're thinking, God, what? I thought you anointed me king. What is going on? And now suddenly you're deflated. You're not sure if God is even having his favor on you anymore. You're down in the dumps. You're literally moving down. You're going into the wilderness. This is where the king is now. Ha ha. And people are cursing David. Who am I? God, what are you doing? And so it says that they arrive at the Jordan River weary. Yeah. They are absolutely weary. They are weary. Now notice David in Psalm 6 says these things. In verse 2, he says, Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am languishing. What a word. Have you ever languished before? It just sounds like you're wilting and you're completely lacking any sort of moisture. Drying out from the inside out. He's languishing. Here's uh, how the message actually put that word languishing. It says, I am black and blue. Now there's an image. I have been beat and kicked around so that I'm now black and blue. Uh, he continues, he says, look, this is second line of verse two. My bones, my bones are troubled. My bones. That's how deep this is being felt physically. Have you ever been... We use this phrase all the time. I am bone tired. That's when you're so tired, you're just feeling it at the core of your being. David is troubled in his bones. And then, verse 3, my soul is also greatly troubled. So here we go. David has been in a habit of prayer now. Evening, morning, evening, morning. And now, now... All of the physical events surrounding him have caught up to him. They have slammed him. So that not only am I feeling troubled in my body, but I'm feeling troubled in my soul and my spirit. The physical has caught up with the spiritual. The bones are tired, yes, but now the soul is troubled. It's all coming together. Wow. Prayer's really helpful, he's thinking. Now, all of a sudden, I'm realizing there's more problems in my life. Why can't everything be solved? That's what we want prayer to be. We wish that prayer was as simple as, God solved my problems. But as we pray, we begin to learn, God says, yeah, yeah, I'll get to those after I deal with your problems in here. Because so often the problems around us are projections of the problems within us. And when we go around complaining, 
or we realize situation after situation isn't working, we're complaining about situation after situation, everybody's an idiot, nobody's got their act together, when we have that attitude, there's a common denominator. Something in here is broken. And God is showing David, he's realizing, he's paused, he's at the Jordan, they've stopped, they're weary, and now it's all crashing in. He says, ah! What happens when we pause long enough to pray, and I mean real prayer, where now we're getting beyond the surface external problems and we're looking at what's going on within. When that kind of prayer happens and we stop running in life, guilt, guilt catches up. Suddenly we're aware that we're sinners. Suddenly we're aware that we have failed, that we've tripped. We've just been too busy to notice. We've been running too fast to worry about that ache, that pain, that blister, that sore. Suddenly the guilt catches up. We know, we know in our heads that we're saved by God's work, his grace, his gift, and not by what we do. We know that. We can quote the scriptures. But in reality, the way we live we are often trying to outwork our guilt, our sense of, I don't want to sit before God with this of who I am. So I'm just going to keep being busy. It's better for me to plan than it is to pray. I'm going to plan evangelistic outreaches. I'm going to plan church events. I'm going to plan a Bible reading schedule. I'm going to plan laundry list kind of praying where I'm just praying for things. I'm going to plan all. And you've got your spiritual life all together because you're a planner. You're a plotter. You've got it managed. You're on the run. Because we're trying to outwork, we're trying to outrun this nagging sense that I am not okay. David realizes this. Look at verse 1. He says, Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. I used to struggle with this psalm. And this week I was like, oh man, I really got to work on this one. Because I used to struggle with this psalm. That first verse was problematic to me. I I didn't know how to pray that or what to do with that. Rebuke me not in your anger nor discipline me in your wrath. But then in my study, I learned that this is one of the seven uh, penitential psalms. Penance psalms. It means repentance, forgiveness. You know you've done wrong. This is the first of the seven. And then it dawned on me, wait, that's what's going on here. David has paused long enough to realize Oh Lord, Lord, you're tre- you're showing me that I have a lot of filth in my life. So, as David's running from Jerusalem, Absalom takes the throne, he's out in the wilderness, and they finally pause at the Jordan River, bone tired, soul tired, what hits him? Oh. I raped Bathsheba. I murdered Uriah. And now there's this Absalom thing. God's trying to show me that I am not okay. How would you like to face that with God? It's so much easier to run, run, run than to rest and pray and let God say, we need to deal with this guilt here, David. Brandon.
When we have to face our guilt, we sometimes can feel abandoned. Like, how can God still use me now? In light of what I've done, how can he use me? I wonder if David's feeling the same kind of doubt right now. Of course you sent Absalom to take the throne. I'm not usable to you anymore after what I've done. God, have you turned your back on me? Have you stopped using me? Verse 3, he asks, but you, Yahweh, and he can't even finish a sentence. He just says, how long? How long is it going to be like this? Am, are you done with me? Am I, am I, if I just send my way out of the kingship, out of your plan, out of your hands? So what happens when we take prayer seriously and pause long enough with God is certain failures and guilt surface. And then it leads to grief. And so does David. Guilt. The problem with prayer is that it can bring up guilt and guilt can lead you to grief. So I've done wrong. Now I feel awful. And so does David. Look at verse four through seven. This is his grief. Turn, Yahweh. See, he feels abandoned. He's asking him to come back. Turn. Come back. Oh, Yahweh, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. He thinks he's going to die. And here's the truth. When you and I are willing to sit with God and actually look at our guilt in the face and stare at that abyss, that darkness, we realize that we deserve to die. We're not sitting there going, well, of course you should forgive me, God, because you're great and that's what you do. We suddenly recognize, I don't deserve life. I deserve what has happened. We begin to recognize that we haven't been saints, that we're wretched, that we're sinners, that we've been just too busy to recognize it. And David says, look, God, I want you to deliver me, but I think I'm going to die and I probably deserve it. Look at verse 5. He he takes us another step further. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Shul, who will give you praise? He is staring at his guilt. And now it's as if he's staring at the jaws of the grave. Death is about to consume him. Oh, man. This is what I deserve. And Christian, have you ever been in this place with David where you've looked at your guilt and you realize, that's what I deserve. I deserve death. There's a lot of cheap grace going around where, yeah, I know I did bad, but whatever. God's nice. But David realizes, the Puritans would often say, look, the crime, uh, what you, let's see, what, what do they say? They say, your crime is measured by the being against which you committed it. So, example, if I kill one of these little, if you kill, let's say, because I know they're up there, one of those black little ants that crawl around up there, if you kill one of those, I'm not holding you accountable. That little ant, I don't know if the universe even wept one tear for it, right? <laughs> We're all like, we need less of them. If you run over a squirrel in an accident because he couldn't make up his mind, that happens. We've all done it. But you hurt a human. You kill a human. We hold you accountable. Why? Because we hold a human higher than a squirrel and an ant, right? So now we look at judgment. But now the Puritans would say, consider God. 
There's no being greater than God. There's no being you could sin that's greater than God. So your sin against the greatest being demands the greatest punishment. Have we realized what we've sinned against or who we've sinned against? David has. And he's staring at the grave, the jaws about to swallow him. He looks at Sheol. Now, you're probably wondering. Sheol's the Hebrew name for the place of the dead. They didn't have a super clear insight into what happened when he died. So they believed everybody went to this place called Sheol. And Sheol was the shadowy world of the spirits of the dead. Unembodied spirits, shadowy, wasn't very substantial. Um, that's why he says things like, look, I can't remember you there. I can't give you praise there. They don't do anything. They're little wisps moving around the shadowy world. I don't want to go there. His grief continues. Verse 6. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of my grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. So yeah, Absalom's around. His men are after him. But he also knows that some of this is because of what he's done. Some of this is because of what he's done. He raped Bathsheba. So Absalom's sister, the story goes, was raped by one of David's other sons. Tamar was raped by Amnon. David said nothing. How can he? He did the same thing. So Absalom, in his ambition, deals with it for David. And he murders Amnon, his brother from another mother, quite literally. And so, Absalom's exiled from the kingdom. You can't kill a prince of the king and get away with that. So Absalom's shunned. But then David brings Absalom back. Welcomes his son back. And Absalom then begins to regain. He begins to gain the hearts of the people of the kingdom. See, David's David's sin with Bathsheba is what has launched this whole rebellion by Absalom against him. David's realizing that his sins have come back around upon him. And he's in grief. So these foes and the guilt I have in here, I'm grieving this. Now friends, when prayer gets intense like this and we're staring at our guilt and we begin to feel the grief, we often want to bail out. That's enough. I see. I know I'm forgiven. Boom. Moving on. But there are severe problems if we don't grieve our guilt. Grieving what we've done. Letting go of who we used to be. This is part of our healing and our salvation is letting God show us what he has saved us from. David grieves. My eye wastes away because of my grief. I, that um, imagery is very vivid. It was in 1 Samuel, oh, I don't remember now, I think 14. Do you remember when Saul had um, the Amalekites on the run and he tells his entire army no one's going to eat until we completely take the last one down you remember this? maybe not but Jonathan didn't hear his dad's command and Jonathan is noticing the soldiers are weary he's weary so he finds some honey and he eats it and it says that his eyes were brightened so when David says that 
his eye is wasting away, it doesn't just mean that he's losing his eyesight. It probably doesn't mean that at all. It probably means that the vi- the vitality of his life, his strength, his vigor is wasting away. Because when Jonathan ate the honey and got his strength back while everyone else was weary, his eyes were brightened, it says. David's eyes are not brightened because this grief He's feeling down and he's sitting with this and he's saying, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry for this. I don't want to move on too quickly. I want to know that what I did was wrong and I want to let it teach me a lesson. So, friends, we move from guilt to grief to grace. This is the good news. The problem with prayer is that if you pray seriously enough, the external prayers become internal. We see guilt. We deal with grief. But, but it leads us to grace. Look at verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. And we've read it. You see that suddenly there's this, there's this expression of confidence. I was in penance. Oh, Lord, all everything's coming back to me. Please be kind to me. I see what I've done. And oh, my goodness, I'm weeping my eyes out and I, I'm in grief and I, I see what I deserve. But then, but then when we allow ourselves to face our guilt and to sit with our grief with God in prayer, he then turns with grace and suddenly the penance becomes confidence. God, are you done with me? You should be, because I am wretched. Then all of a sudden, I'm not done with you, David. I'm still going to use you. Oh, praise him. He heard my prayer. Penance went to confidence. This turn has happened. But see, friends, this is where real grace comes into play, is when we recognize a need for the grace. Grace is not just, oh, I went around the Monopoly board and I got to get it out of jail free card. Grace is not that. It's not just suddenly, oh, I wasn't expecting this kindness from God. I'll take that because, I mean, we all need goodness in our lives. The grace David is experiencing is the grace that comes when you know where you should be. But God says, because you know that you're wretched, now I'm going to lift you up. Now, David, I can use you in your second half of life. Now I can lift you up. Now I can give you real grace and power that will change your life. Because you have faced your guilt and you have grieved your sin. We often think of grace as an add-on to our Christian life. Yep, I'm this horrible person. I know I'm a sinner. There's no other way to heaven. But grace, add it on. Boom. Now that I got grace on me, I'm going to make it. As if all we need is enough sugar coating on the outside to make us attractive to God. Oh, that's works. No, we also use grace as a type of work. I've added grace to my life. I'm good. Grace deals with us through and through. There's a quote I have printed out in my office, and I love this because it reminds me how to truly live with Christ. It says this, um, the spiritual life is not about addition, it's about subtraction. The spiritual life is not about addition, it's about subtraction. 
And I love that. Because here's how the running life works. I need more prayer. I need more scripture. I need more fellowship. I need more church. I need more events. I need more serving. I We look at ways to grow as do this, add this, include this. But the spiritual life actually grows through subtraction, not through addition. This is what David's learning. David's learning that I have to, in prayer, let go of things. There is real loss. So in this prayer, I see my guilt. I'm grieving that guilt. Why? Because it's so easy for us to say, oh yeah, but God's forgiven me. And it's still lingering. This sense of I've done wrong. I'm bad. I know what I should have. But if we grieve the guilt, if we grieve the sin and let it actually work in us and say, God, why have you allowed me to do this? Or why is this in my life? And let it teach us. We can then let go of it forever. There's a lot of Christians carrying trauma in their lives. And I don't mean war trauma or abuse, trauma, although those things do exist, I mean, I did this against my creator. I know I'm forgiven, but we don't actually deal with it with God. We just know, yes, he's forgiven me. I've asked for forgiveness and we move on and it's still lingering like this haunting, trying to swallow us, gaping jaws of death and shul. And we're we're always running and we're trying to prove ourselves and we're trying to say, I am a Christian and I'm, I'm doing good things. And this is the running life to trying to outrun life. Real prayer, when practiced long enough to make us pause so that everything catches up to us, will not be pretty at first. But it will teach us to deal with and grieve the wrongs in our life so that we can let go. When you've cried your last tear over something you've done because you thought I'm not worthy anymore, and then God caught that last tear and said, I know. That's why you're worthy. Because you don't think you're anybody special. That's when we can move burden-free. We're carrying unexpressed grief in our souls. Grief actually means, when you look up the origin of the word, it refers to grave and heavy. And it's pressing on us. And of course, then we reach the Jordan like David and we are weary. Lord, my bones are troubled. My soul is troubled. I'm languishing. I'm black and blue. Yes, we are. It's not wrong that we realize this about ourselves in Psalm 6. This is how we can finally release. And God says, I'll take that. And he subtracts this part. Growth is about subtraction, not addition. Grace. Grace comes when we finally create space to receive it. Grace isn't just something, God, give it to me. That's cheap. Grace always fills a space. And we must let go of the grief and the guilt. And that's where the grace rushes in. That's where the grace says, yes, you've lost part of yourself. Now I can use you. Now my grace will work through you. This is what Paul will later call crucifixion. Dying to the flesh. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is subtraction. The mathematics of grace is that something is lost, then God can fill that up. 
God is looking for men and women who, like David, are able to pray long enough and constantly enough to face their guilt, grieve their guilt, and receive grace for the guilt. And that is how David can go from this psalm of absolute penance, absolute pain, to suddenly erupting in absolute confidence and absolute praise. It's because grace has filled the space that his grief opened up. The gap between verse 7 and 8 of grief and grace is unknown. Some of us have been stuck in verse 7, 1 through 7, for a long time. How long, O Lord? How long, he asked in verse 3. As soon as you're willing to let go, let go of Brandon, release him. Prayer teaches us loss, that we grow through loss, that we rise through death, that when we let go, God holds on. Sometimes we're sitting in our grief and we say, when will this end? And then God says, stop asking when will this end and start asking, what will this end? Not when will my grief end, but what will your grief end? What in your life is this moment trying to eradicate? Christians, we're running because we're trying to add on to our life and we're beating ourselves black and blue. When God is saying, come, I will take the crown if necessary to teach you that my grace will fill that place. So, here's, here's where prayer is more important than planning. I want you guys to finally and lastly notice that David, nowhere in Psalms uh, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, his running from Absalom's Psalms, in none of those five Psalms is David planning his return to the throne. In none of those five Psalms is he plotting the next step. In all five of those Psalms, he is praying and feeling the whole roller coaster of emotions he's going through. Prayer is harder than planning, but far, far more necessary. It's hard, friends. It really is hard to look at our guilt and to let God teach us through it. But I know from the worst crimes I've committed in my life, I don't mean federal crimes. Don't don't um, background check me. I mean, you can, but... It'd be boring. The worst crimes in my life were the ones that I couldn't just run from. I had to deal with them because they affected other people. And it was hard and it was horrible. And I wished I could have just pulled out the grace wand and said, it never happened. Yes, in God's eyes, it never happened. But guess what? I know it happened and I'm carrying it. But by letting it work its way in me and absolutely kill me, there is a whole Brandon snakeskin back there that you no longer see. And that's how we do it, friends. Prayer, though. Prayer. Yes, the guilt's hard. The grief is awful. But the grace is like nothing 
the world can give you. So, do you want the grave or do you want grace? David was staring at the grave, but then he found grace. We can either let the grief and guilt hover over us and run us to the ground, or we can let grace hold us 